Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. How would you like to look 5 years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, children of the night. As I mentioned last week, I spent a week at Disney World. Well, I do have two things to mention about that. First, two days before leaving for Florida, 
I started coughing and losing sleep to the uncontrollable cough. Figuring this would be an allergy thing or brief cold, I soldiered on. A couple days after arriving in Florida with the worsening cough, I was convinced to go to an urgent care, where I found out I had an upper respiratory infection with some bronchitis. With a fistful of pills, Disney World became more accessible, but came with a low-grade drunkenness. Figuring that I owed it to the children of the night to ride the Magic Kingdom's only horror-themed ride, the Haunted Mansion. Through the fog of pharmaceuticals, I found myself amazed at the illusions that Disney presented to the riders. The attention to detail and engineering that goes into the ride I found to be impressive, but not scary. However, there is another ride at Disney World that I found unnerving and compounded my chemical disorientation. That would be, it's a small world. The repetitious song, dead-eyed puppetry, and cartoonish cultural depictions gave me a sense of claustrophobia in that ride's cart, as if at any moment those singing dolls would close in. But perhaps that was all just the cold medicine talking. I'm happy to be back, but of this moment, my lungs still hurt and I still cough some, so I'm not at 100%. If I sound strange, that's why. And I think that I'll save the rest of my voice for telling you about our two terrifying tales for the evening. And speaking of Disney, our first story comes to us from Kelly Trapnell, who, as a regular contributor to Federator's Cartoon Hangover, she has a couple pieces there, including How the Disney Vault Works and Mickey Mouse, Then versus Now, both of which you can find on YouTube. You also can find her short horror on the Cliffhanger mobile app, on Motherboard's Terraform, and in Paper Darts, among other publications. Kelly is working on a comic series about teenagers who immaculately conceive monsters in rural towns across America. She also runs a blog called Last Call Stories, which features a series of weird and scary stories set in her favorite bars in Brooklyn, where she lives with her girlfriend and her cat. Listen with me to Kelly Trapnell's Auto Photo Studio Model 20A, originally published at Kelly Trapnell's Last Call Stories on January 26, 2017. Full moon hazy in the clouded summer darkness. All heat, talk, and holiday energy in the checkered board of Williamsburg streets. People mill about outside of late-night bodegas and glass-pane storefronts, smoke cigarettes in front of graffitied walls. The gay bar down the street thrum-thrums with dance music. A group of girls wearing bachelorette sashes and crowns laugh and walk by with arms linked. Outside one of the many converted warehouses, models pose for an impromptu photo shoot. Everyone is young. It's nearly midnight, the 2nd of July. A couple winds their way down the sidewalk, through the Friday night crowd. They haven't been together long, not by most standards, only a few months now, but they're exclusive, newly so. You can see it in their hands, the way he clasps her fingers tight, like he's thankful still, wary of letting her go too far. She laughs loud, gestures big with her free hand, She's starting to show herself. Both are blonde, lean. He wears 1950s reporter glasses. Horn-rimmed, designer, though he doesn't need them. He has cleaned his black converse. His father's watch is a shock of silver whenever the mottled light falls just so. She wears her hair in her sister's bone beret. Pulled up into the side a little, so the smooth curve of her ear shows. So he'll see the glint of the one earring she's wearing, a long copper pin. His eyes are blue, her eyes are gray, smoked in the same shade of black as the asymmetrical dress she's wearing. To each other, they are an entire universe, contained. Each notices the other's small, human smells, the vital sounds of their bodies, her skirt swishing as she walks, the brush of her thighs, skin on skin shushing, his breath as it catches when he looks at her the push of the veins in his neck against the collar of his buttoned-up polo. But to the throng of people that rushes by in groups of two, three, and five, the couple may as well not even exist. The couple ghosts past, 
the couple turns off into a bar with the indoor half-pipe and the small neon initials swinging on the sign above the door. They are excited when the bouncer tells them that the metal band they like is playing a free show tonight as part of the grand opening of the bar's newly added back room. How lucky, they think. How awesome. Inside, the girl leans in and kisses her boy on the neck, then breaks away with a murmur and a wink. He watches her glide up to the long, curved bar and order them beers. The only light in the place comes from the backlit bar shelf. The yellow pinprick flames in the candles on every round high top. The light makes her golden hair glow against the black of her dress, her pale arms and legs suspended midair. Disconnected, but animate. He feels her beauty like a growl in his throat. When she comes back to him, she smiles down at the beers in her hands, walks as though she knows she won't spill a drop. He might even love her. She gives him his beer and takes a long pull from her own. Her friends don't know that she's actually really into this guy. She lets him push open the door to the back room, strides in ahead of him. The band's thrash metal hits the couple like a wall, and they both smile when the wispy girl singer with the purple hair throws her head back and lets loose a key-perfect howl. The couple, delighted, shares a quick kiss. The band kicks into life, and the ragtag audience grows with every new song. The couple drinks. Beer, shots, anything, eager to keep the buzz. When the girl singer belts the final phrase of the band's last song, sliding across the stage on her knees to the sound of the last scream of the guitar, the last pounding drum beats, the boy slips the girl into a long kiss. Then the crowd is dispersing, and the band is packing up, but the couple is drunk and blissful. They have forgotten the music. They stumble over to a little round top in the one empty corner. There is no candle, but the bluish light from a photo booth nearby is enough to see by. The couple laughs at nothing, at their own fantastic luck. How, in a city so selfish and huge, did they ever find each other? How, after all they've seen gone wrong in their lives, can this one thing, the only thing that matters, be actually going right? And then the girl realizes what it is she said, aloud. To this man she's only known for what, two, three months? And she falls into her beer again, tips the glass up so the golden liquid fills her mouth, drowns the three words she's thinking, that she's learning, may be true. And the boy can see her changing now and panics inside. W what if he's wrong about her? What if she can see through his act? He downs his beer as well. And then he sees the photo booth, lit up like a beacon. It's Sepia Bach's body, plain and undecorated, save for the lone band poster featuring a grinning skull. The dust-colored curtain is half-drawn. He thinks of the old black-and-white movies his mom likes. His sister's Molly Ringwald thing. He thinks of romance and daguerreotype and quadrupled. Here is a thing that can save his game. By now, the back room is empty, save for the two of them, a barback tidying up across the room and the photo booth gleaming. By now, the back room is empty, save for the two of them, a barback tidying up across the room and the photo booth gleaming. He touches her elbow and points to the booth. It's a little expensive, but what the hell? She smiles, relieved, so very relieved to be free of having to think about what all of this really means. They pull back the curtain and step into the booth together. They see that it's a very old model, one of those vintage photo booths from the 60s. A tag on the inside of the booth reads, Auto Photo Studio Model 20A. The boy scoffs at the fucking hipsters, and the girl knows to laugh, but really, they're both delighted. Everything about the booth charms. How unlike the others they've seen. How fated that they would find this particular booth together. The booth has a twin light bulb flash mechanism above the camera box, with a jagged crack running right down the center of the glass. Two arrows read, look here, on either side of the box. Behind the spinning plastic seats is no fancy background, no green screen, just a faded tan curtain stretched across the back of the booth. The couple glances at the thick, brownish stain on the curtain. Jokes about what it could be, how disgusting the city is. The stain makes them both a little nervous. The boy swipes his card in the payment slot. There is no signal, no countdown. So the couple stares and smiles at the cracked glass, waiting. The lights flash once, and the boy jumps. The girl catches her breath. 
They laugh at each other's fright, but the laughter jars, and they do not feel better. As they wait for the next photo, the next flash from the lights, the girl feels a sharp, cold tightening just below her ribcage. She touches the spot on her stomach. The boy moves beneath her in discomfort. A sound like an approaching train car fills up their cars, and as the light bulb warms and brightens above them, the noise becomes a roar. The boy feels like he's underwater, stuck. The girl feels like she's been stabbed through the chest. When the lights flash again, the couple screams in pain from inside the booth. Across the room, the barback looks up. It's been a long shift. He fucking hated tonight's band. He's tired, and tired of drunken idiots hanging around just to make his job harder. He slaps the towel in his hand down on the bar top and comes out from behind the bar. He hears the light bulbs inside the photo booth flash once, twice, but no one screams. Something metallic thumps to the floor. He stops halfway to the booth. From where he's standing, it doesn't seem like anybody's in the photo booth at all. From where he's standing, it doesn't seem like anybody is in the photo booth at all. But the curtain is drawn, and he's certain he heard screams. And before that, laughter, and some muffled conversation. He waits a beat, but nothing moves. The room is silent. Goosebumps race along his back and arms. He calls out, but there's no answer. The skull poster on the side of the booth seems to be laughing at him. Then a sound, like a paper pushed into a slot, and a strip of film plinks into the tray on the outside of the photo booth. Hardly breathing, the bar back approaches the photo booth. The light pools in a bluish sheen just beneath the curtain. As he comes closer, the barback can see a pair of hipster glasses, a crumpled silver watch next to a bone beret, and one single, thin, copper earring. He calls out again, but he doesn't know why. The booth is clearly empty. With a shaking hand, the barback reaches for the photos, then backs quickly away from the booth. He looks at the strip of paper for a moment, taking in each of the four frames. Then he curses and drops the photo, runs as fast as he can through the doors that lead to the bar's exit. The bar is still a wreck, and he's left his phone on the shelf next to the unfinished after-shift drink he'd poured himself. The strip of photos lies face up on the floor. In the first frame, the couple poses. Their smiles uncertain, but their bodies relaxed. They're happy in each other's arms, new to love. In the next frame, a scene far different. The couple's faces are contorted in pain. A third figure, hazy, stands behind them, more burning eyes and fingers wrapped around the couple's shoulders than anything else. An interesting, if terrifying, special effect. By the third frame, the couple has disappeared. In their place sits a human-like figure. Photo real. Its skull has been flayed of skin, its eyeballs wide, white and bulging, only two single black dots for pupils. Its shoulders and chest are also bare of skin, bleeding. Ragged muscle stretches tight over the bones visible beneath. Its mouth is fanged, its jaws spread wide. It laughs. The fourth frame is empty, save for the beige backdrop curtain and that one mysterious dark stain. Something like a cigarette burn hovers just above it centered in the darkness of the photo. That was Kelly Trapnell's Auto Photo Studio Model 20A, as read by Danielle Gracie. Danielle is recording out of New Bedford, Massachusetts. When she isn't recording, she can be found chasing her small children around. She is a full-time graphic designer who spends her days at a print shop. Thank you, Danielle. Our second story comes from Greg Sturman, who we heard from back in episode 271 with his Lady of the Knife. Greg Sturman is a London-born writer currently living in Australia and pursuing a Master of Teaching degree at the University of Tasmania. Being left alone in a darkened room as a child with a crackly recording of Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart, on the stereo first turned him on to the world of horror and changed his life. 
Greg's idea of heaven is happening across a second-hand bookshop in an unfamiliar town and having the time to browse the shelves. When not reading or writing short stories in the horror, weird, and associated speculative fiction genres, he likes to listen to podcasts, audiobooks, and old-time radio shows. He often does this while striving to master Photoshop so that he can create awesome art. Greg doesn't blog or tweet and hardly ever posts on Facebook. Someday he'll establish a social media presence. Meanwhile, he can be contacted in the old-school fashion via his email at redtailrooster at yahoo.co.uk. And now a Tales to Terrify original, Greg Sturman's Joey the Runaway. It was pretty late, I'd say, probably about nine. It figured, because Scotty Mufflin hadn't gotten back from meeting with his brother across town yet. They always meet up for a meal together on Fridays. Same restaurant every time. You believe that? I think I'd get sick of it. Restaurant's owned by the guy who's screwing Scotty's ex-wife, too. Don't know how poor Scotty manages it. Good luck to him. Good luck to them both, I say. Plus, Helen, the whore who's in room 12, hadn't gone off to work yet. Busy night for her, Fridays. Well, she says she's a taxi dancer, but we all know she's a whore. Perhaps that's too mean a thing to say. That's Cherkowitz talking. Helen's no whore, not a proper one. She's got a part-time job as a stenographer, for Christ's sakes. Let's say Helen's a regular good-time gal who's had by all, and one with enough smarts to not mind making a bit of bank on the side while she's having it. I'm not objecting. No way. She's discreet with her comings and goings, if you know what I mean. Keeps her room spotless. Clean as a nun. Cleaner, maybe. Some weeks she's late with the rent, but then she's always so apologetic about it, fluttering the boss, them big doll eyes of hers, and the lettuce... I mean, the green stuff does come in from her eventually. Her pimp, sorry, booking agent, Mickey's a good fella too and looks out for her okay. Better than most of their boyfriends, I tell you. Never a mark on her. He got me the hooch I'd been sipping from that evening, so again I ain't complaining. But she hadn't gone out to the halls yet, so it must have been about nine. I was sitting in the house's lobby, reclining back in my chair behind the reception desk when I heard a tap. Then I heard another. I was engrossed in a western, one of them pulp numbers, a Sheriff Rowdy Rick Silver title. I'd got to the part where Rowdy'd been shot in the side by Big Jim Wade in front of the gathered townsfolk of Prosser's Gulch, included amongst the onlookers being his gal, the blue-eyed, blonde-haired doctor's daughter. Or was it the dentist's daughter? Now, the tapping didn't exactly break the tension of the moment, if you know what I mean. It was my second time reading that particular adventure, and I knew what had happened. That Rowdy'd be okay. That the bullet had only grazed his ribs. By the time I had slipped Mickey a few bills for the scotch, I couldn't afford to buy a new title at the drugstore that week, and that book, I decided, was good enough for a read-through. As good as any. But the tapping startled me somewhat. The house ain't the nicest place to be at the best of times. And that night, it was looking a bit creepy and a bit empty. What with me being there all by my lonesome. Everybody being out and all. Plus, we were having trouble with the generator again, despite my tinkering with it. And the bulbs in the wall lights, the ones that hadn't blown, were glowing dim. And it was a dark and gusty evening outside to boot. What's more, I couldn't tell what it was that was doing the knocking. For a moment, I thought I could be hearing things, that it was a side effect of the hooch. Mickey usually passes on good stuff, but sometimes, whoa, boy. But I'd had no more than a few fingers from the bottle. Didn't plan to really let rip until Scotty got back from the restaurant across town, as he can be a bit of a fusser although nowhere like as bad as Cherkowitz is, so I didn't think it was that. Then came a couple more raps. Looking down along my legs, this time I saw, 
right next to where I'd crossed my ankles, a tiny hand banging against the top of the desk. I folded over the corner of my page and put the book down. I slipped the bottle into a drawer and turned the key on it. A fellow can never be too circumspect, you know. You never know when Clellan's apt to show up. Kicking my feet off the desk, I went around to the other side of the counter to see what was up. Confronting me was this small boy, and I mean small, in a large, thick-kit sweater with black-and-white hoops. He had a thick, bushy mop of hazelnut-brown hair on his head, rosy cheeks and red lips, rosier and redder than Helen's when she does up her face for her special evenings, an enormous grin cutting wide across his moon-like face. I know it sounds kind of cutesy when I put it like that, but the kid's appearance was actually pretty freaky, even for a visitor to so cheap and disreputable a rooming house as Clellan's. And believe me, we get our fair share of oddballs. He kept on staring right up at me with that goofy, dopey grin, happy as you like. But I was starting to think that maybe he wasn't a kid, or not a regular kid, maybe a malformed boy, or even a full-grown man with a health condition. I towered over him, and I ain't that tall no more. Just standing so close as we was by the counter felt a little rude, you know? It was short for his head. I mean, his head was too large for the dinky little body beneath it. Sort of like a fairground cupie doll. Was it a man with, what's it called, a gland condition? That explained the swollen head, I told myself. As for the freckles dotted over his cheeks, they didn't look natural at all. Almost like they'd been painted into place with one of them fancy little brushes Helen keeps in a drawer of her dresser. Were they contractable? At the thought of it, I backed away a step. Then I noticed scabs on the back of the kid's pale and slender hands. It wasn't a good first impression, all told. The boy, or the man, as such he was, didn't seem phased. I was staring at him a touch. And I must have been staring a touch. I probably stared a touch harder the longer he didn't seem to be caring about it. I couldn't rightly think of a single useful thing to say, and I've been in this rooming game for forty years. When he blinked, it was with both eyes at once, like a tiny clap. Hi, I'm Joey, the kid piped up out of nowhere in this reedy Looney Tunes sort of voice I'd sort of been expecting still staring straight right up at me. I'd like a place to stay. That was it. He didn't say nothing more. He didn't need to. We'd a room going, and his taking it was fine by me, and I figured it'd be equally fine with Cleland. The kid's stunted words had revealed him to be a harmless simpleton, and they make for the best lodgers. Before I could reply... He was already holding out a wad of bills in one of his scabby little ladylike paws. Fair enough, I told him, going back over to the business side of the desk. While I was putting his name down in the book, Joey told me he was in town looking for his little pal, also named Joey, go figure, and needed a place to stay while he was at it. Apparently this other Joey had run away and gotten himself lost. I felt compelled to crinkle up my brow in sympathy. What with that big old moony face looming up at me? I asked if he knew where his buddy was. He said he didn't. Still, he knew for a fact this other Joey's was here someplace in town. He just had to find him. As I tucked the bills away, I realized I was still in the dark as to what this other Joey was, whether he was a person or some sort of animal, or how this Joey... I mean, the one then before me, knew he, the other who wasn't, was hereabouts. And whether he was lost, lost, or he'd meant in hiding or something else. The kid had with him a black leather holdall. He noticed I was looking and swiveled that big bowling ball head of his down to it and back up at me again. He did another double blink. It's Joey's case! he announced in a jolly tone, just as childishly presumptive as before, as if this went the whole nine yards to explaining things. 
I couldn't tell whether he meant the bag belonged to him, or to his pal, or else his pal lived in it, when he wasn't off being lost, of course. If he lived in it, surely that meant the other Joey was a pet of sorts. I couldn't be bothered with thinking things through at the time, all the implications, and being up on my feet was reacting badly with the scotch. The funny little fella had paid up front for the room, two weeks' rent, and that was good enough for me. I gave Joey the key to room number six up on the floor above. I told the kid to follow and headed over to the stairs to take him there. He got ahead of me before I'd crossed the lobby and started up first, real eager. Bringing up the rear, relying rather heavily on the rail, I was humored by the bobbing gait of the wee chappy and the working of his skinny little legs. He's like a tiny bird pecking at each step, I thought to myself with a chuckle. Number six ain't one of our best, but it's cozy and dry, pleasant enough if he ain't too fussy. Despite the room's shabbiness, Joey declared himself happy with the state of things. I'd a feeling he would. Touching a finger to the crumbled lettuce in my pocket, I decided I really liked our latest boarder. I snuck a look inside Joey's room when he went out the next day, and I'd sobered up somewhat. I'd been told to take more paper up to the bathroom on that floor, so it wasn't like I was going out of my way to pry or nothing. I ain't that sort of guy, usually. Our newest tenant didn't appear to have any possessions to speak of. None at least he'd seen fit to leave behind him when he'd gone out. Had the bed been slept in? It didn't look like it had, although there was a faint impression of a form on the tatty old counterpane. When I looked inside the hold-all he'd left behind, I found it empty, except for some short lengths of black string and some small bits of wood. These were crossed over like a crucifix, but it didn't take no priest to tell me it wasn't, not with the string being stuck to it and all. It was a darned mystery to me as to what the thing was for. Something kinky, maybe? Was the kid a fruit? I thought he could be. I can't say I cared one way or another if he was, but did think it might go to explain his friends running away from him. Not to judge. I lost count of Joey's comings and goings over the following week. I'm janitor here as well as concierge, and was caught up in catching a rat that had been seen in the rooming house's basement where the laundry's done. Plus I'd gotten from Helen Mickey another bottle of that hooch. The first had turned me into quite the fan. Not all the rent money Joey'd paid me had made its way to my boss, Ted Cleland, I should explain. Still, I'd catch a holler from the kid in the evenings as I sat at the desk in the lobby. I didn't need to look up to know it was him. I'd hear his little cartoony voice bidding me hello, then that pecking sound as he made his way up the stairs. I'd raise a salutatory palm and get back to the paper or my book or whatnot. All was well until a further tenant of ours, the bane of my otherwise comfortable existence, Mrs. Enid K. Cherkowitz, that horrid widowed bitch, came over one afternoon and complained of a huge man, a veritable giant as she described him to me, with immense disapproval, coming unannounced into the house in search of what she described as the midget. I took this to mean Joey. Who else? Didn't take no genius to work that one out. I guess she must have seen him about. Apparently, this lofty interloper had been hauling a huge leather case around with him and had promised to return. Both these factors clearly struck Cherkowitz's mind as darkly ominous. At the time, I didn't pay her much mind. I thought her personal descriptions of her fellow tenants unsocial, downright unneighborly. She was the one who got me into the bad habit of calling Helen Twellig a whore. As with Helen, I growed fond of the strange new guy, him being so good-natured and positive and all. He was like our very own serial mascot, like one of them grinning elves they have holding up the big silver spoons on the packets. He was out on his mission most of the day, so could hardly be said to be bothering anybody, least of all Cherkowitz, who in any case stuck mostly to her room which is number nine, brooding on all the displeasures and disappointments that were observable to her in the world, no doubt. 
But when I saw him coming in with his big, bright smile and his itty-bitty, tappy footsteps, Joey's happy call of hello would lend a bit of brightness on my day, unlike Cherkowitz's own aggravating self. Joey was taking his leather bag out with him now, I noticed. He left far too early in the morning for me to witness. I don't clock in till noon. But I'd see him coming back in the evenings, and he never failed to be polite and always grinned at me with his cheery optimism, although it was evident he'd been unsuccessful in his search for his buddy, the hold all looking suggestively weightless. Where did he go to? I thought absently to myself. Where can the other Joey be hiding? Vinedale's an awful big town nowadays, too big a place for games of hide-and-seek. Having blocked off its escape routes, I finally managed to corner the rat in the basement and whacked it one square on the noggin with the business end of a pipe wrench. I hoped with a startled thought the pest wasn't this other Joey our Joey was out searching for. One afternoon, a week or so after his arrival, Joey came back to the rooming house early. I'd only just started my shift on reception. He announced with proud gusto how he'd at last found his little pal, the other Joey. He waved the hold all triumphantly aloft at the end of a rail-thin arm. It clearly had something in it at last. I concluded that something had to be the other Joey. I was still sitting at the desk, sipping on some gin Mickey'd got me. Not half as smooth as the whiskey, I thought but it made a pleasant change, and I was getting increasingly relaxed to it, and I was just pondering whether to start on the rowdy Rick Silver Western a third time, although I knew it certainly didn't deserve that accolade, when I heard Joey trampling about in his room overhead. He was clearly celebrating, presumably playing around with his dog or whatnot. It's funny. I remember thinking to myself, without really taking it in, how damn quiet the pet was completely silent, in fact. But I was happy for him, happy for them both. I took a long drag from the quart of gin as my toast. About an hour later, Joey came down to tell me he'd be off the next day. I'd figured he would be. Other folk I'd be worrying they'd be about to try to hustle for some of their rent money back, but I knew old Joe would be as good as gold on that front. Better, in fact. It could have been the drink making me sentimental, but I felt I was genuinely going to miss Joey being around. He then asked whether, on account of me being such a big help to him and all, I'd like to see his little pal, the other Joey. I thought to myself, why not? It was a Tuesday, and Tuesdays are always a doddle. I was quite a ways into the gin by then, and I felt a bit giddy on standing up from my seat behind the desk, to tell you rightly. But I went up to Joey's room just the same. I even forgot to stash the bottle away in the drawer. His enthusiasm was infectious, as I said. Up he goes, I noted with a fond smile as I followed a few steps behind him on the stairs. Peck, peck, peck. We were soon in number six. With obvious relish, Joey went across and produced from his hold-all a mannequin of sorts. Aha! So Joey's a puppet! I remember thinking to myself with a degree of intellectual contentment. Nope, not a puppet, I corrected. He was something much more sophisticated than that. One of them French or Italian things. Marionettes, aren't they? He couldn't have run away, after all. I reflected he must have been stolen. Well, good on the boy for stealing him back. It's obviously rightfully his, I told myself with a warming swell of righteousness. For the marionette Joey looked exactly like the real Joey, right down to the stripy jumper and bobbing bulbous head, if at about a third his size. I fully acknowledge I was operating on drunken logic here as to the thing's provenance. The kid fixed strings to the marionette at various points. It surprised me how quickly he did this. Then, taking up the crucifix contraption to have flummoxed me earlier, Joey began to operate it. Within moments, I'd determined I'd never seen anything done so perfectly in the entirety of my sixty-seven years on this earth. I was convinced of this, no matter how soaked I might have been. Sober, I'm as certain of it now, really. 
the kid's control over the puppet was downright incredible. A marvel to behold. No more than a marvel. It was miraculous. As seemingly effortless as breathing in and out, put into action the marionette resembled more than ever its operator, matching to a T Joey's jouncy, loose-limbed manner of gesticulation. I've no idea what kind of dances the marionette was made to perform on my behalf, but they followed smoothly on, one after another. I admit I can hardly tell a waltz from Watusi, and furthermore, have previously taken a contrary pride in this ignorance. But I nevertheless recognize that all the steps and turns and scrapes and bows and what-have-yous were performed with the accomplished grace of a dance-master, whatever the hell they were. All French and Italian, too, I'll be bound, just like the doll itself. As he worked the sticks, Joey explained how his little pal had run off, because his own little pal had gone missing. Fortunately, he'd managed to find him just before Joey had found him. Wow, that's nice, I murmured reflexively, not really taking the words in. Caught up as I was in all them dainty little dance steps, and the accompanying toing and froing. Joey had started to jig about sympathetically as he worked the marionette. Joey said he'd found his little pal in a little boarding house somewheres. Wow! Imagine that, I replied. Don't that just take the biscuit? Looking over to the side, I noticed a second smaller hold all sitting there next to Joey's own, although this duplicate was still zippered tight. For a moment I suspected the drink was making me to see double. Gin as a way of sneaking up on a man, I've found. But no, the marionette was walked over to the smaller bag with a stately little swagger, and then, leaning over and working its slim, doll-like fingers, it drew open the little zipper. The puppet then bent over to lift from the bag a further marionette, and repeating the gentle gesture, a further, tinier hold-all. To my astonishment, Joey worked the original marionette's hands, so it began to untangle the loops of the second one's strings. It then took up and began working the smaller marionette itself. The second marionette then took a third marionette and a fourth hold-all out from the third bag. This third marionette then took a fourth marionette and a fifth hold-all out of the fourth bag. Well, you can guess the rest. The spiraling pattern ran smoothly and without interruption, all engineered with an increasingly alarming casualness by Joey at an increasingly alarming temperate speed, smaller and smaller marionettes being extracted from smaller and smaller holdalls to operate smaller and smaller marionettes. It goes without saying I was incredulous at this point. I wish to God I was sober, as what I was witnessing was making my head spin round and grinding my marbles down to dust. I felt like I were being reduced into nothingness as I watched the marionettes get ever smaller in size, that a fairy door had opened up somewheres, and I'd slipped on through it into another world. There must have been dozens of them in operation by that point— one working another that was 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 working another, and it just didn't let up. The smallest, most newly revealed marionette of the set now reaching out a hair-thin arm, an arm reaching down into the newest and ant-sized hold-all to retrieve. I fled Joey's room in a blind panic unable to allow myself to witness yet another damned doll emerge from yet another damned bag. I'm sure I screamed just like a girl as I ran out. How many more of them were there? I feared the answer, that the chain was endless and the dancing fiends would continue reproducing for eternity if I was only around to permit them to. In my room, I flung myself onto my bed, breaking down into tears of repulsion at the impossibility of it all. I felt ready for the nuthatch. Taxi to go, cases to follow, I remember laughing hysterically, banging my fist down hard over and over on my pillow, imagining it a front-of-house counter. 
straitjacket, ice baths, padded cell, pills on the hour. Book me in for the works, the full five-star service. I guess I passed out. I was awakened by a loud knocking at my door. It was morning. Enid Cherkowitz, that decrepit troublemaker, was trying her very best to rouse me. Coming to, I consoled myself with the undeniable fact that she at least was human. All too human. The prunish look of displeasure she awarded me when I finally got my trembling fingers to turn over the latch caused whatever booze remained in my system to pour out in the form of a cold sweat. She stated angrily how the strange man she'd seen here last week looking for the midget, the veritable giant, had come back as he'd promised. Moments earlier, she reported, he'd clumped up the stairs looking for Joey. I had a hazy notion of hearing a rumble of thunder in my sleep just before Cherkowitz's banging. As concierge, I did what I had to do. I couldn't get out of it, what with a flustered Cherkowitz right there on my ass. I followed as directed, somewhat automatically, somewhat scared at the prospect of having to think again. I arrived to see a huge-bodied hulk of a man with a head even larger than Joey's, exiting room number six. I saw a Cherkowitz point. The man was truly startling in appearance, especially as he was, down to his thickly knitted sweater with its black and white hoops, his thick bush of hazelnut brown hair, his burnished cheeks, and his face-splitting grin, the very double of Joey, just as Joey's little pal was in the other complimentary dimension, his double. The gigantic fellow pushed past me, more clumsily than rudely, I thought, clearly carried by a trajectory that existed as its own force of nature. Summoning all my resolve, forcing the words through the dry, recalcitrant gully of my gullet, I managed to ask the interloper if everything was okay. "'Oh, yes,' he boomed loudly in reply. That over-familiar idiot's grin set into the vast face appearing over one broad shoulder. I was looking for my little pal, and now I found him. He was lost, you see. At the end of an overlong arm, the monstrous man waggled a large black leather hold-all, a hold-all identical to the one Joey kept his own little pal in, if three times its size. I could only look on in astonishment. As the freak stomped down the stairs, three at a time, and out of the building, thump, 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 he moved with the exact same exaggerated up-and-down motion Joey had. Of course, the poor kid had to be in the bag, as I found no trace of him anywhere in the room. It's too early to begin drinking, I told myself firmly, but it is not too early to go back to bed, and so resolving to forget as best as I could, and as soon as I was able, the entire episode, I went back to my room. An hour or two later, I managed to fall back asleep. That was Greg Sturman's Joey, the Runaway, as read by Dan Gerzinski. Dan lives in Tully, New York, near Syracuse, and earns his living bending the unseen forces of nature to his will as a broadcast engineer. He's been a recording engineer, electronics technician, repairer of broken things, and regularly reads for LibriVox.org. Thank you, Dan. That'll be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives, 4.0 License. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network.
dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 